tonight. I wasn't going to do it, but I'm going to. What did you hear, Yanni or Laurel? Just go ahead. I know, I'm like two weeks late to the party, but it fits really well with the message today. So, how many of you guys heard Yanni? Me too. Me too. That's all I ever heard until I really started messing with the EQ. Apparently, if you take or add, um, subtract bass, you'll get a different sound. And so, I always heard Yanni. How many of you guys heard Laurel? It's about half and half. That's really impressive to me that there's such a divide. And it's funny to see people get so worked up over it online, isn't it? It's like a legit raging debate where somebody will listen to an audio file and they'll say, well, clearly it says Yanni. How could anybody disagree? And their spouse says, clearly it says Laurel, what's the matter with you? Who did I even marry? It's hilarious to me to see how differently we can hear the exact same sound. Now, people, of course, have been doing this with the Bible for years. This didn't just start in the past couple of weeks. Am I right? People have been taking the Bible and reading portions of it or reading the whole thing, and they'll come to a conclusion. And they'll say, oh, clearly the Bible says, and then they'll, you know, kind of uh, line out whatever conclusion it is that they've drawn based on what they think the scripture says. Then somebody else will read the exact same book, the exact same set of scriptures, and they'll say, clearly it doesn't say that, it says the exact opposite. Who's right? How do we know? There's probably no other area where um, we see this divide based on how people read the scripture than when it comes to the role of women in the kingdom of God. Oh my gosh, is he going there? Yeah, we're gonna go there today. We're gonna go there because people read the Bible and they come to very opposite conclusions about what women are supposed to do or not supposed to do based on what they think they see in the Bible. It's amazing to me that there are probably half the people in the world who will read scripture and they'll say, okay, clearly the Bible says that women are supposed to be silent and submissive, clearly. And then somebody else will read the same passages and they'll say, no way. Clearly women are supposed to be hashtag boss babes. Like it just depends on which verse or how you read it and interpret it. And there's like, I don't wanna say a battle certainly, but there's a tension. There's a tug of war that goes on based on our understanding of what the scripture teaches on this subject. I mean, we really have to wonder, according to the Bible, are women supposed to be helpers or leaders? Because there are some that say, nope, the role of a woman is this. And then there are others that say, no, the role of a woman is that. Uh, should women in our church, should women in our society, should they be looking for their glass slipper? Or should they be smashing through glass ceilings? I mean, it's a, it's a debate, right? It's a question. And oftentimes the Bible becomes one of the centerpieces around this argument, particularly when it comes to church. I mean, are women really the weaker sex? We've got a whole elementary and, and young kids department out there full of tutus and pigtails and freckles this morning. What are we supposed to tell those girls about who God created them to be? Then, if I could just go ahead and bring this up as well, in the middle of a world that's having huge, heartbreaking discussions around Me Too and Church Too, what does the church what does the Bible have to offer to a culture that is struggling to figure out how we should treat the women among us? 
Well, this morning, we're going to do our best to answer that question, or at least to speak on the subject. We're going to continue this series that we've been doing for a while now called Characters. And in this series, we're looking at the lives and stories of people in Scripture, and then we're seeing what sort of principles, what sort of truths do we see that impact the 21st century? Because some of these stories were written 2,000, 3,000, 4,000 years ago, and yet time and time again, I am amazed at how timely and topical these stories really are. So this morning, we're going to kind of walk through the story of a woman named Deborah. How many guys have heard of Deborah before? Okay, like a third of you. So that means a lot of this is going to be brand new to you guys, and I'm super pumped about it because it's a really, really neat story. And I'm going to tell you up front that I will not be able to answer every single question, okay? That's not the point of this message unless you want to be here until three, and you don't. So I'm going to do my best to set the stage to kind of serve you some thoughts from this passage and a few others, and then talk to you about our church and opportunities for you ladies to use your talents and giftings within the body of Christ and out in the marketplace or in your homes, wherever it is that God has placed you. So we're going to read from Judges chapter number four this morning. If you're unfamiliar with the book of Judges, let me give you just a little bit of context before we start reading Deborah's story. So essentially, we uh, have in ancient Israel's history this guy named Moses. We talked about Moses over the last few weeks in our um, Four Things I Wish You Knew About God series. And Moses was the prince of Egypt. He's the guy who led the Israelites out of Egyptian slavery in the Exodus. Perhaps you've read that book of the Bible or you've seen the movies. Moses leads the people for 40 years after they leave the land of Egypt, and then he dies. And his protege, a guy named Joshua, takes over. And Joshua leads for quite a long time. And then he dies. And after these two very giant men of the faith die, there are a succession of leaders over the ancient Israelite people. And we call those leaders judges. There's an entire book in the Old Testament that tells their stories. Now, the word judge It just means leader. That's it. It's just another word for leader. And so they're going to pass judgment. They're going to provide leadership. They're going to be military conquerors in many cases. These are the leaders that transition from Moses leading people out through the Exodus and King David coming along later and setting up what we call a monarchy in ancient Israel. Okay? So this is a transition period. And there's a very interesting pattern that shows itself throughout the book of Judges. If you've ever read it, it's probably jumped off the page at you. What happens is people start screwing up. They do all the wrong things. They break all the rules. They run away from God. Their society just goes buck wild. They are wilding out, you guys. Then God raises up one of these, excuse me, one of these judges, a leader to come along and to kind of lead them back the way that they should go. Get them back on track, get them focused on the things that matter, start treating each other the way that they should. And things go well under that judge until that judge passes away. And then the whole society goes crazy again. And so God has to raise up another one of the judges. And so um, there's this cycle that goes on and on and on and on. So Deborah, the, the lady that we're gonna be talking about this morning, she's one of these judges, one of these leaders over the entire nation of Israel. And we're gonna see her story here in Judges chapter number four, beginning in verse number one. So we'll just start reading through it, okay? The scripture says this, after Ehud's death, now Ehud was an earlier judge, Okay, see if you can pick out the pattern I just pointed out to you. After Ehud's death, the Israelites again did evil in the Lord's sight. So the Lord turned them over to King Jabin of Hazor, who was a Canaanite king. 
The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in a town that your pastor's not going to try to pronounce. All right, let me make sure you follow me already. Jabin is the king of an enemy country, and he has a military commander named Sisera. And the fact that Jabin has been so powerful and successful actually comes down to Sisera because his military commander was like that fantastic at his job. Now, the scripture says Sisera had 900 iron chariots and he ruthlessly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years. Then the people of Israel cried to the Lord for help. Back in their day, iron chariots were the tanks of their time. This was very advanced military technology. And the Israelites were still on foot. And they were fighting with spears and slings and swords. So for somebody to come through with horses and an iron chariot, there was almost nothing the Israelites could do to stand against them. It would be like if you and your neighborhood decided you were going to go to war against you know, the national government. They're going to outmatch you. And that's exactly what's going on. And so because of this advanced technology that they had in warfare, they actually oppressed the Israelites for 20 solid years. Now, verse four, we get introduced to Deborah. Deborah was the wife of Lapidoth. And she was a prophetess who was judging Israel at that time. Now, let me pause for a moment because I wanna highlight the fact that the scripture calls Deborah a prophetess. That is someone who speaks to people on God's behalf. This is a role that typically we haven't seen in the Old Testament reserved for women. And yet there are several places throughout the Bible where ladies are called prophetess. They actually fulfill this very important spiritual role. And the scripture says she was judging Israel at the time. That means that she was the national leader. She was the prime minister, the president. So this was a very powerful woman. She had religious authority and she also had political authority as well. This is unusual. This is unusual. And yet both of those things are true about Deborah. The Bible says she would sit under the palm of Deborah. I just want to pause for a moment and point out the fact that she had her own palm tree. It was named after her. You know, none of this in memory of stuff. She was so important in their society that they were naming stuff after her before she even died. Okay, so she sat under the palm tree of Deborah between the towns of Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites would go to her for judgment. So one day she sent for Barak and she said to this man, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel commands you. Call out 10,000 warriors from the tribes of Naphtali and Zebulon and go to Mount Tabor. And I, God is speaking here through Deborah, I will call out Sisera, that military commander, the commander of Jabin's army, and along with his chariots and his warriors to the Kishon River. And there I will give you victory over him. Now, again, I just want you to remember, he had been oppressing them for 20 years. They were so totally outclassed in military technology and capability that this was a very foolish move on their part to go take Jabin and Sisera head on. Barak told her, verse number eight, Barak told her, I will go, but only, Deborah, if you go with me. Very well, Deborah replied, I will go with you, but you will receive no honor in this venture. For the Lord's victory over Sisera will be at the hands of a woman. 
Now, there are a couple of ways that we can read this. We're getting into a Yanni and Laurel situation here. Um, Is this Barak shunning his responsibility? He's afraid to go to battle. And so he's like, Deborah, the only way I'll do it is if you come with me. Or is this Barak, the wise military commander, saying, God is clearly with this woman. She has some wisdom, and she's a good advisor, and so I'm going to take her with me. I tend to think it's the latter, and I'll tell you why here in just a few moments, but you could kind of read it in both ways. I would just suggest you don't read this as punishment. This is not God saying, okay, Barak, because you didn't listen to me, I'm going to let a woman steal all your glory. I don't think that's what's going on here. So the scripture says, Deborah went with Barak to this area called Kadesh. Now in verse 11, there's this weird parentheses, okay? They're gonna pause the battle story and they're gonna tell you something that seems very unnecessary, but it'll become necessary when we get later in the story. So the scripture says in verse 11, now Heber the Kenite, he was a man named Heber, a descendant of Moses' brother-in-law, had moved away from the members of his tribe and pitched his tent by the oak of Zananim near Kedish. So there's this guy who didn't get along with his neighbors. He packed his family up and they moved out into the wilderness. The wilderness that they moved into is actually very near to where this battle is about to take place. You guys follow me so far? Okay, good. All right, here we go. When Sisera, this is the military commander of the neighboring army, when Sisera was told that Barak had gone to Mount Tabor, he called for all 900 of his chariots and all of his warriors, and they marched from Harasheth Hagayim to the Kishon River. Then Deborah said to Barak, get ready. This is the day the Lord will give you victory over Sisera, for the Lord is marching ahead of you. So Barak led his 10,000 warriors down the slopes of Mount Tabor into battle. Verse 15, the scripture tells us when Barak attacked, the Lord threw Sisera and all his chariots and warriors into a panic. Now in chapter four, that's all it tells us. Somehow God showed up and he threw him into a panic. If you were to flip over to chapter number five, you would find out that what happened was God sent a flood down a dry riverbed that Sisera and his army were using to gain access to the mountain. This was the dry season. So Sisera had no reason to expect that there would ever be water coming down, much less a flash flood. This was a miracle because water flooded through in the middle of the dry season. It would be a little bit like us getting, you know, I would say snow in July, but that happens here, right? So it's not that much of a miracle. It's a little bit like us getting sunshine in January. I mean, nobody was expecting this. And so the scripture says, the Lord threw Sisera and all his chariots and warriors into a panic. Their their chariots got stuck in the mud. And suddenly, the thing that had been their advantage became dead weight. The thing that they were relying on was going to become their undoing. So the scripture says, Sisera leapt down from his chariot and he escaped on foot. He booked out. Then Barak chased the chariots and the enemy all the way to this city where Sisera had come from. So they went on the offensive at this point. And the scripture says, he killed all of Sisera's warriors, not a single one was left. Now, this is where the story gets interesting. It's been cool so far. This is so nuts if you've never read this. Meanwhile, Sisera ran off to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber, the Canaanite. Remember him? He was the dude who couldn't get along with the neighbors and moved out to the country. His wife is at home while this battle is going on. Sisera's chariot gets stuck. He gets scared. He jumps and he runs away. And he's like, oh, 
I know that Heber and his wife Jael are in the area. I'm gonna go hide out at their tent. So the scripture says, Sisera ran off to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Canaanite, because Heber's family was on friendly terms with King Jabin of Hazor. So Jael, she was an Israelite. She was one of the good guys, so to speak. She went out to meet Sisera and she said, come into my tent, sir. Come in, don't be afraid. So he went into her tent and she covered him with a blanket. Please give me some water, he said, I'm thirsty. So she gave him some milk from a leather bag and she covered him again. This is always a weird kind of situation to me. I'm like, did she give him a soother and a stuffy too? Like she's really taking care of this guy here. Poor strong warrior. So he says to her, stand at the door of the tent. And if anybody comes and asks you if there is anyone here, then say, nope, just me and the dogs. But when Sisera fell asleep from exhaustion, remember he had just been fought, he had just been fighting in a battle. He had been completely worn out and routed, which had never happened before. When Sisera fell asleep from exhaustion, Jael, the lady, quietly crept up to him with a hammer and a tent peg in her hand. Then she drove the tent peg through his temple and into the ground, and he died. Woo, boss babe. I don't care. I'm landing on boss babe with that one. That is impressive. This was not a warrior. This was a housewife. And she took like tools of being a housewife. Like they lived in tents. And so, you know, this was quote unquote, don't get mad at me for saying this, but back in the day, this was woman's work to put up the tent. And she takes a hammer and nails and secures victory for God's people. Now, look, I don't have time to develop this. I probably should spend the whole message here, but where else in the Bible are people delivered by a hammer and nails? Woo! The story of Jesus. Jesus delivers people with a hammer and nails. Although as he always does, he flips the script on his head because he doesn't make the hammer and nails a weapon. Instead, he submits himself to the violence of the hammer and nails. I love, man, when you read the Old and New Testaments, guys, you will find this thread of the gospel of Jesus just woven throughout. And man, if you've got eyes to see, it's mind-blowing. So the scripture ends here, this chapter ends, the story wraps up, it says in verse number 23. So on that day, Israel saw God defeat Jabin, the Canaanite king. Wow, this is a cool story. I mean, this is one of the good ones. And unfortunately, Deborah, who is a giant hero of the faith, doesn't get a lot of play in the church today. So we're hoping to write that a little bit this morning. So let me ask you, what did you hear in Deborah's story? What did you hear in Deborah's story? Was she the example for all women to follow? Or is she the exception? God kind of had to do this at this point in time, but that's not really what women are called to do in our world today. It's Yanni and Laurel. What do you see when you read this passage? Some will say, clearly, Deborah is this strong, divinely favored, blessed female leader. She is the only female judge, the only one. The rest of them were all guys and none of them were particularly good, to be honest with you. She's one of the very few who were good the whole way through. But others will read this story and they'll say, sure, Deborah was a leader, but it was only because Barack wouldn't step up. 
He wouldn't lead the way God intended for him to. And so like Deborah had to because Barak was such a wuss, okay? Some people will read this and they'll say, look, clearly Deborah is a prophetess. She led Barak and others. They would say, well, but you also notice she wouldn't lead the army. She refused to do that. She left that to Barak. In fact, weirdly enough, she's the only one of all the judges that never actually leads in battle. Every other one was a warrior with a sword in his hand at some point. And yet that's not the way that Deborah chooses to lead. Some people will link Deborah to other strong women in the scripture, um, like Huldah and Lydia and Ruth and Priscilla. And so they'll say, hey, these are examples of what God wants every one of you 2X chromosome humans to be like. And then other people will take Deborah and they will link her to different passages of scripture, namely Genesis 3, in 1 Timothy chapter number 2, 1 Corinthians 14, and they'll say, wait a sec, God seems to put some limits on what women should and should not do in the church or in the home or in society, blah, blah, blah. And so the, the Deborah and these other women are not examples. They happen to be the exception to the rule. Who's right in all of this? Yanni or Laurel? Which one should we land on when we read these stories in the scripture? I'll also point out that this is incredibly important. I mean, this matters beyond a stupid, simple theological debate. I'm not interested in theological debates. I almost said I wasn't interested in theology. It's probably not the right message a pastor should send. I'm not interested in theological debates where we just go round and round in circles. I'm interested in what happens day to day in our city, in our neighborhood, in our church, in your family. I only want to have conversations about how God wants to bring hope and healing and transformation to you. And I think this is one of those. If you have in your mind, oh, this is just some theological controversy that doesn't really affect me, you have not been on Twitter lately. Because this is playing out all around us. And as the church, we have a responsibility to speak up and to share what the scripture has to say on this particular subject. Most of the skeptics in our world will point to the Bible and accuse it of oppressing and even marginalizing and abusing women. And they'll say that is a primary reason that we should reject faith in the 21st century. How could you possibly follow a religion that tells women they must be silent and submissive, right? So it's important that we get this right. It's important that we have this conversation. So I'm not gonna be able to answer all of your questions I'm not going to be able to address every single uh, verse in the Bible where you might have issues or questions or qualms. But what I am going to do is this. I'm going to lead you through a a few truths that we find in the Bible. And I'm going to tell you where we've landed as a church on this. You don't have to agree with me. That's okay. But if you want to be a part of Connect, if you want to be 100% behind us, then you you should know where we're coming from on this particular issue. And so hopefully this will give you some clarity if you're a lady on like, what, what, what does God desire from me? What can I do? How can I be involved? Have I overstepped? Am I too scared? Like, where do I land on this? And then men, this will help you as you relate to your wife and as you raise your daughters and sons. I mean, like if we could grab a hold of what the scripture says here, I believe we would have less of the problems that we see in the world today. So let me give you one big principle. This is kind of the overarching thought. Everything else I say is going to fall underneath it this morning. Women are integral 
to God's plan A, and there is no plan B. Women, listen, I don't care where you fall on this theological spectrum here. I don't care if you read it and you're like silent submissive or if you read the Bible, boss babe. I don't care where you fall. You cannot argue with the fact that women are clearly integral to God's plan to redeem and reconcile the world. Throughout the Bible, women play a vital role in what God is doing. Seriously. I mean, I don't know how anybody, even if they disagree with you know, this group of Christians or that theology or whatever, I don't know how we could look at the scripture and so fully marginalize the contributions of women. Listen, women apparently are mission critical to God's kingdom. Seriously. Women are mission critical to God getting what God wants in our world. Let me give you a few uh, examples of that. Think about the fact, consider the fact that it was a woman who was tasked with carrying and raising the Son of God. Has it ever kind of just struck you how much we know about Mary in the Bible and how little we know about Joseph? Dude gets a few verses and then he disappears. Did he die? Nobody even knows. And God chose a woman to bring his son into the world. Listen, the news of the resurrection was not entrusted to the 12 disciples. It was entrusted to a handful of women. And you have to understand that in the first century, women, and listen, I'm not agreeing with this. I'm not saying this is a good thing. I'm saying this is a screwed up part of the world that they lived in. Women were not considered trustworthy. They couldn't give testimony in court. They were literally still considered property of their husbands. And yet, when Jesus rose from the dead, both he and the angels who announced it didn't announce it to Peter and James and John. They announced it to the women hey, if you want to get real nitty-gritty, did you know that the first word spoken in the post-resurrection world was woman? The first word that anybody said was woman. And you know who said it? Jesus. See, women are critical to what God is trying to accomplish in the world. There have been more women, female followers of Jesus than men. If you break it down, it's true of our church, it's true of most churches throughout history, more women are present than men present. And so we cannot minimize the fact that God wants to use you ladies to accomplish his mission, to transform the world. You guys are not second fiddle somehow. You are a very important part of what God wants to do. In fact, here at Connect, I believe, my wife believes, we believe as a leadership team that the church handicaps itself when we minimize the wisdom and gifts and voices of women at our church. We really do. We need you guys. The kingdom of God itself cannot flourish, and the mission of God cannot be accomplished if half of the population is excluded. When Jesus gave the Great Commission, it wasn't just to men, it was to women as well. So ladies, you are integral to God's plan A, the only plan in existence. And the church has not always done very well with you, but we're gonna do our very best to remind ourselves of just how important you are to what we do each and every day.
Now, some of you will say, but wait a sec, Dan. There are things in the Bible that are misogynistic and they're oppressive and the Bible is very backwards compared to the rest of society. The Bible pulls us back instead of pushing us forward. So you talk a good game, but there are scriptures in the Bible that I'm just not happy or comfortable with. And you're right. There are scriptures in the Bible that seem very out of step with society around us. But can I just say that maybe society is not the best yardstick we should use to measure how well we're treating women? Again, have you been on social media recently? Do you watch the news? I mean, Morgan Freeman was just outed as an abuser. Morgan freaking Freeman, the guy who played the voice of God in several movies, turns out to be a total creep back. Like, in our world, it's not just one or two guys. It's systemic. It's endemic. It is an epidemic. And it's not just Hollywood. It's the corporate world. And hey, it's the church world too. You guys don't run in the circles that I do, but there are plenty of pastors recently who have been, they've fallen. They have been totally upended Things and secrets about them have come out. My heroes in ministry, in a lot of cases. It's heartbreaking. So maybe, just maybe, this isn't a Bible problem. Maybe it's a human problem. Maybe it's not 1 Timothy 2's fault that we treat women so badly. Maybe it's our fault, and we need to own it as a church and as a world. Because if it's a human problem, then like all human problems, the Bible accurately diagnoses the problem and gives us the appropriate solution as well. I shouldn't have to say these things, but I'm going to. We're going to run through these really quick. But I just, I don't know. I thought this stuff was taken for granted. I assumed everybody knew these things. But maybe not. So let me give you a few things that you just need to stick in the back of your pocket and you need to keep them in your mind as you relate to one another. First of all, women are created, according to the scripture, women are created by God with equal worth and dignity to men. That's true. That's what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that women are the beloved daughters of their heavenly father. And women were not created as objects for our lust or anger. If we take advantage, the women that God has placed among us, if we abuse them, you better believe God takes notice. In the same way that you would be so angry if somebody took advantage of your daughter, I want you to know that God feels that way when people take advantage of his daughters. It fires him up. I told you a couple weeks ago, there are things that make God angry. And the stuff that happens in our world, the stuff that happens in some of your homes, angers Heavenly Father. And I think he gets doubly angry if somehow you pick up the Bible and try to use it to justify your sin. Women are created with equal worth, and dignity to men. Genesis 2 tells us that they are equal image bearers, that we, men and women, are both created uniquely and equally in the image of of God. 
Ephesians 2 tells us that women are co-heirs to all the promises of Christ. We read in Galatians 3 how your gender, and, and also by extension like your age, your religious background, your financial situation, your past history, none of that impacts how much God loves you. Women and men carry equal dignity as image bearers of God. Second thing. Women are given the exact same spiritual gifts as men in the Bible. Women are given the exact same spiritual gifts. Deborah, Judge Debbie here, was a prophetess. She was a prophetess. She's one of seven named prophetesses in the Bible. Prophecy in the New Testament, book of Ephesians in particular, is a spiritual gift. And Deborah had it, and so did six other women that were named. You see, there's nothing in the Bible that says that men get certain gifts and women get other gifts. The big ones go to the dudes and the lesser ones, you know, go to the ladies. There's just nothing in the Old Testament or the New Testament that indicates that to be the truth. What, I mean, what does the book of Joel say in the Old Testament? There will come a day when your daughters will prophesy. What does the book of Acts say in the New Testament? The day has come when your daughters will start prophesying. It's there throughout. God wants to use every one of us, regardless of whether we are men or women. And the spirit of God is present in every one of you and wants to loose you to do his work in the world using the exact same spiritual gifts he gives your husband or your pastor or any other guy you might see walking around. Let me read you a quote from a pastor named J.D. Greer. Joshua actually was a part of J.D.'s church before he came here to connect. He's got this amazing quote. It's really one of my favorites on the subject. Listen to what he said. There is a myth alive in some parts of the church that men should be taught deep, rich theology and women should learn how to match their curtains with the pillows on their couch and how not to feel sad on rainy days. But he says, that's a myth. The whole of the Bible was written for, men, uh, for women as well as for men, and they need to learn all of it. Listen, I'm just telling you where I've landed as a pastor, where we stand as a church. If you disagree, let's have coffee and chat it out. But as far as I can see from the scripture, women can and should preach and teach. I really believe it. Because you see that happening, and I'm going to show you a couple of examples. It's a spiritual gift, preaching and teaching. Go read the book of Ephesians. Pastor, teacher is a spiritual gift. And if God gives spiritual gifts, the same spiritual gifts to men and to women, that actually means that women can carry the gifting of pastor, teacher. That's why my wife carries the title of pastor here. She has the spiritual gift of pastoring. And so... We think that women can and should preach and teach. Women can and should lead, both in the home, in the world, at church. They should, because leadership is listed in the book of Romans as a spiritual gift. And if God gives every spiritual gift to every gender, women should be able to exercise the leadership gift that God gives them. Women can and should share their faith. They should be a part of evangelism and advancing the mission of God. Listen, ladies, our promise to you at Connect is that if you will lean in, we will lift you up. 
We will give you a platform to point others towards Jesus. Whether your primary calling is in your home or it's in the workplace or it's here on stage, we will do whatever we can so that you can use the gifts and callings that God has placed on your life so we can accomplish the mission the church was called to do. That's what it's all about. And so we'll do our very best to create a safe and powerful environment where both genders get to use their gifts and callings to serve God. Why? Because the credibility of the church and the spread of the gospel is actually at stake if we choose otherwise. All right, now let me anger you a little bit. See, because in certain circumstances, in certain situations, for the sake of the gospel, the Bible places limits on what women should do. Now, I'm not saying what women can do. Women can do anything. I mean, you guys could get up here and preach. You could pray. You could read the Bible. You could put together lessons. Heidi is one of the best Bible teachers we have in the church. She's a woman. You guys can do this. Yeah, what's up, Heidi? You guys can do this stuff incredibly well. But there are certain circumstances in culture or in the life and history of the church in which God calls you women to do something that he calls us men to do. He calls everybody to do. And that is to lay down some of your rights for the sake of the gospel so that God's message can expand. Now listen, people have taken this and they've used it as a way to oppress women. And they've said, okay, so for the sake of the gospel, you better not speak or teach, or you better not lead, or you better not do this or that. But there are some examples where God calls women to voluntarily choose to limit what they could do for the sake of the gospel. And again, I'll point out, he does the same thing to men in other places, and we can talk about those if you want. So let me give you an example. And this is one of those hard passages that I don't love and people always have problems with. In 1 Timothy chapter number two, the scripture says, women should learn quietly and submissively. I do not allow a woman to teach men or to usurp, to steal, to rob authority from them. Now, if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, you can get really up in arms over this verse because it seems to be a straightforward and blanket statement that women should not speak or teach or lead in church. However, if you compare this verse to other verses in the Bible, you'll see that there are times where women speakers and preachers and leaders and prophetesses and deaconesses where they are celebrated. And so either the Bible contradicts itself or there's something deeper here going on. Let me give you a couple of those examples. If you were to read over, go ahead. If you were to read in 1 Corinthians chapter number 11, the scripture says, when a woman prays publicly, she should. And then it lists out several things that a woman should do. In their culture, it included wearing a head covering because it was improper for a woman to take any sort of leadership in public without having a head covering on. And so it says, when women pray, when they speak publicly in front of the church, this is how it should be done. And so in this circumstance, Paul calls women to voluntarily limit, voluntarily limit themselves to have a cultural sign of authority on their head so that people won't get caught up on the fact that, oh my gosh, the women are going crazy. They don't have a hat on today. And instead they would focus on these ladies who are using their gifts to draw people to Jesus. Now look, there's another example. If you read in the book of Acts, the scripture tells us that when Aquila, who was a guy, that's a male name, and his wife Priscilla, 
when they heard this man, this preacher named Apollos, who was a guy, they took him aside and they explained the way of God to him more accurately. Do you see that this is a woman tutoring a man in the ways of the scripture? It's clear, like that's really what happened. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. And so, yes, there are these hard times where God says, hey, listen, we may have to try to to make some compromises so the culture will hear us. And there are also times where the church has to rise up and speak prophetically and say, this is not God's plan and design. We're in the middle of one of those moments in our world because in, in, in the middle of a society that... Has, has tried to tell us that they are making women free, in charge. What we've really done is we have created a society in which women are nothing more than commodities. You guys, I'm so sorry, but you are bought and sold on the whims of the men in our world. And that is not what God intends. And it's not what God intends in his church. And so we have got to push women out in front, give them leadership and recognize there are times we may need you guys to pull back. And there are times where we need to promote men and we need to let them lead with their gifts. And there are times where we say, hey, husband, your wife may have a little more uh, wisdom on this subject. Maybe you need to listen to her and quit playing the, I'm the spiritual head of the home card. Maybe you are, but that doesn't mean you get to run roughshod over everybody. I gotta wrap up. I could keep going, but I'm not going to. Here's what I, I just wanna read you one last verse because we're over time already. First Corinthians chapter number 11, verses 11 through 12. This is what the scripture says. But among the Lord's people, Women are not independent of men, and men are not independent of women. For although the first woman came from man, every other man was born from a woman. And everything and everyone ultimately comes from God. Hey, ladies, we need you at Connect. I need you out of a seat, and I need you exercising your gifts. And men, I need you out of the seat, exercising your gifts. And we need to promote one another. We need to celebrate one another. We need to encourage one another. We need to love one another. We need to show the world that it is possible to have healthy relationships between men and women. In the home, work, at the church. 